So our text today is super, super short, but if you would like a Bible, um, the ushers are in the back with Bibles, you can put your hand up. Um, We're going to be in Ephesians 6, uh, verses 14 and 15. A little context before we go any farther, this week I, I kept having this come up in my brain and it's a little bit of me looking at history and looking at what Paul's saying and trying to put two and two together, um, the truth <clears throat> that is in this passage is unstained. Some of the context that I'm about to give you may be conjecture, but I want you to hear that before I say it because I want you to understand that test, test the conjecture part, but I promise you this, I'm not going to say anything dishonest. I just I wanted us to see something that I think Paul is bringing out here that's just a little different maybe than historically what you've heard. But most of you know Paul is in prison in the city of Rome as he writes this. And the Roman Empire, just a, this is like the briefest overview ever, but the Roman Empire was a seemingly unstoppable force in the ancient world. They were the standard that all civilizations measured themselves by for hundreds of years even after their fall. There's record uh, late, 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 and still even in certain parts of the world, being the Roman emperor is considered something very, very prominent. Um, which is crazy to think that the Roman Empire, as we know it, um, has been gone for almost 1,500 years. And so we look at this, and and they were a principled, organized uh, group of people, and they brought stability to those places that they conquered. Um, Roman soldiers really were kind of like that forefront piece to this whole kingdom. And we know this because that's often what happens in the ancient world. The conquering army becomes kind of that symbol of that particular culture. So you look at them, and they were feared around the world for their cohesion as a force, tactics, and valor. They were the driving force behind the advancement of Rome. And after conquering most of the places around them and beyond, they then had to govern these places. Now, this is the interesting part, because this is where my mind starts to roll a little bit as we talk about Ephesians 6. The Romans were brilliant at governing. It's one of the reasons why they kept their empire so long. So We hear a lot of times about these bad emperors, right? Nero and all these others. But in all honesty, Rome presided over the greatest, longest era of peace that the ancient world had ever seen. It was called Pax Romana. It was from AD 27, this is all rough, AD 27 to about 180 AD. Uh, 180 AD, you start to see how the Roman Empire begins to collapse with all these fringe groups that come in and take it over. But right in the middle, this doesn't take a scholar, but right in the middle of all of that, the New Testament is written, okay? Right in the middle, the heart of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This peaceful period supposedly ushered in this whole new civilization and way of thinking about the world, the peace of Rome. And we get the New Testament. Now, this is, this is where it becomes a little different. As most of the empire seemingly flourished underneath this peace, you've got cultures that had never seen or that had only ever seen fighting for years and years and conquering with different tribes and everything else. And all of a sudden, the Romans come in and it's peaceful. It's not what they know, these cultures, but it's peaceful. Now, there was a province that was known for rebelliousness. This province was Judea-Palestine, 
which is also where most of the New Testament in that particular area kind of sparks or comes out of. So this is interesting, okay? You've got the Judeans, these people who were conquered by Rome. Rome came in, set the whole thing right, and they're trying to bring Pax Romana. Now, these people, the Jews and, and anybody else living in this region, were known for being rebellious because their land had a meaning to them that was almost sacred and entitled. And so the fact that Rome claimed that Palestine was theirs boiled the blood of the people living in Palestine. Even though Rome is trying to bring peace, they don't want peace. They want Rome out. Now this is where the Roman soldier comes in again. Because the Roman soldier in Judea and Palestine, when he takes Pax Romana to go and help govern Palestine and Judea, he hears stories, bloody stories. He hears stories of rebellions that end with Roman soldiers being killed in front of groups of people. He hears stories, possibly even seen these stories himself, of his fellow countrymen in a faraway land being butchered. Now, this is the crazy part. Palestine doesn't boil over into rebellion at all times. It's like peace sprinkled in with rebellion. And here's what it looked like to the Roman soldier. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. They're in a different land where the people look different. Their religion is different. It might have been incredibly difficult to distinguish friend or foe. In the heart of the individual Roman soldier occupying Palestine was a very fragile peace. The occupying soldier in Palestine is experiencing an extremely fragile knife's edge peace. Now think about it. Normal everyday people walk by all the time. Women go to get water. Men go to work. Kids play. Friends laugh. And the whole time, you, the Roman soldier, sit there and you think to yourself, what kind of monstrous thoughts do they have about me? Your peace was a ready peace. Your peace was a prepared state. Please knowing that at some point, someone may actually act on that monstrous thought. But the Apostle Paul is in Rome. Pax Romana in Rome, and the Roman soldier guarding the jail is going to look very different than the Roman soldier that the Apostle Paul saw in Jerusalem. The Roman soldier in Jerusalem is ready. He is prepared. He knows that whatever peace is there could immediately blow up into something not peaceful. But the Roman soldier in Rome, this is his place. This is his land. He knows. These people are the same religion. He understands what they're doing. They look the same. He might even know many of them. So the Roman soldier possibly in Rome is not as prepared for whatever may come. The Roman soldier in Rome maybe is a little aloof. Maybe he's a little more content. Maybe he's a little more distracted. Maybe he feels like he's so comfortable there that he doesn't need to be prepared and aware. That his training doesn't need to come into play as often because there's nothing going on. Armies won't march into Rome for hundreds of years from, here, from now. And I think the Apostle Paul sees this in Ephesians 6. I think the Apostle Paul is looking at a Roman soldier while he's in jail. And he sees this Roman soldier in Rome. And he remembers back to what the Roman soldiers were like in Palestine. And he sees a difference. Now the reason I say that as we get into our passage is because 
I think the Apostle Paul takes this and he warns us about something as believers. It is so easy to think that no battle will come, so I don't need to be prepared. It is so easy to think that my comfort level is strong enough to withstand certain things. See, Pax Romana was a contrary gospel to Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. The Christians knew this. The Christians knew that these people living underneath Roman rule had allowed government to become their strength as opposed to Christ himself. So when you look in Ephesians 6 and, and Paul says, stand, stand in the strength of the Lord, stand. This word stand isn't just stand up like, hey, you're sitting down, go ahead and stand up. Like this is like, hold your position. When Paul says to stand, he's saying, hold your position. It's a military term. And anytime somebody repeats the same word like eight times in a two-sentence piece, I think they want you to know something, right? So Paul is giving us a warning. And that warning continues as he begins to give us specific pieces of armor. Let's look at Ephesians 6, 14 and 15. Again, he says, stand therefore, this is 14, 6, 14, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I will walk through the very specific pieces, but that hold your position idea is a sense of preparedness. It's a sense of readiness. And he reiterates that with the belt of truth. It is not unintentional that he starts with this belt of truth. Now, this actually... I hate to do this because I have like a bachelor's degree in Bible and like people who are like doctorates write Bibles, so, or translate them, I apologize, translate Bibles. <laughs> um, and so I feel like an idiot when I go, they should have translated it like this, but <laughs> they should have translated it like this. So um, ha- the, actual, the actual phrasing is having girded your loins with the truth. Now, it's okay. It's okay. All right. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know that. Uh, Somebody said loins in church. I get it. I have a picture. <laughs> I hope. Um, and I, I wanted you to see this. I wanted you to see this mostly because I have a weird sense of humor. Um, a, typical, a typical kind of uh, outfit, in a sense, in that time was that everybody wore these gigantic dresses. Man dresses, woman dresses. They call them other things, but I'm calling them dresses. Okay. It's not a dress. Forgive me if you're an ancient Roman in here and I I just insulted you. So, as you can see, there's a process involved with girding your loins, okay? And there's a reason for this. When your tunic is nice and long and flowy, it's cool. You have freedom of movement, in a sense. It's a different sort of experience altogether, okay? When you... (laughs) I'm so sorry. I see some people's faces, and you're enjoying this so much more than I am, but I want to enjoy it like you do. Okay. Um, But if you look at the process that this fine-drawn gentleman is going through, you'll see he wraps that tunic around, right? It goes underneath. He ties it again. Okay? And what it becomes in the end is almost like shorts. Now, the reason you would do this is not comfort. Okay? You don't gird your loins for comfort. 
all right? You gird your loins because you're prepared. You gird your loins because as a soldier, there's a battle coming. Or as a, someone who's going to work, you can't work in the field with a tunic like that. It's restrictive. You have to turn it into something that's more like shorts. It allows you to free flow, work, whatever you need to do. doesn't get caught on weird branches, anything, right? And so we laugh about this, but to them, this is a symbol. You can take the picture off now before I giggle more. Um, we, we, we laugh about this because it's so foreign to what we do. We just put on a pair of shorts, right? I mean, duh. Uh, and nobody wears shorts into battle anymore anyway, but what, whatever. So the idea is that he was prepared. And when Paul says to gird your loins with the truth, here it is again. Paul is saying, prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. Stop acting like there's no battle here. Prepare yourselves. And when he says, gird your loins with truth, when he says, put on the belt of truth, this is involving scripture, okay? Here's why. I'm not going to blow anybody away probably with this piece of information, but I'm willing to bet that many of us live as if this information isn't true. As a believer, you have aligned yourself with God. And because of that, you have an enemy who at any moment, at any moment, is ready and willing to do whatever it takes to remove you from your defensive position. And that enemy is incredibly powerful. That enemy has seen humanity grow up. That enemy has been a part of every civilization under the sun. And that enemy has a better idea of what you're capable of than you do. Now, that enemy is not going to steal you out of the kingdom of God because God is too powerful for that. That enemy wants to render you useless. That enemy wants to make you nothing more than a waste of space. He wants your life to be purposeless, rudderless, aimless, entertainment-addicted, hedonistic. He wants you, this enemy, to create plans that are good and follow through on everything that your heart desires. Because the battle cry of the people who do follow the enemy, Jesus says in John 8, basically people who are not in the kingdom of God, at this point right now, they think they're autonomous. They think they're living out their own dreams. But that's exactly what the enemy wants. If the enemy can get you to believe that you are autonomous and that he is distant, then you will be so comfortable. You will find yourself in a place where you're not worried about the battle at all. You're, you're just at ease, man. There's no battle here. It's just whether I'm going to, you know, get good grades. I'm not going to have the life I want. Now, Satan tempted Jesus. In Matthew 4, we see this interaction. And one of the things Satan does, okay, is he uses scripture and he uses it poorly. Satan takes scripture and misquotes it to Jesus to try to get Jesus to back down from his mission. And Jesus responds to him with scripture quoted correctly. There is, there is no great formula to understand this, okay? There's no key to unlock how to enjoy the Bible. And, I, and I'm not going to be able to convince you today, if you walked in here, 
struggling with the scriptures and whether you even want to pick them up, I'm not going to convince you to do it. But if you choose not to, you are totally unprepared and vulnerable to any lie that the enemy wants to send your way because you're not even anywhere near the truth. I'm telling you you're unprepared for what's going to come at you, not not what might come at you, what's going to come at you, you are unprepared for. So I thought about my own life, and I thought about the scriptures for me that things that I've had to memorize in my life because I come from a totally, completely slave to sin place. I believe more lies than I believe truth probably still in my life. But to remove that, I've got to replace those lies with something honest, something true, good intel. So I look at things like, uh, in my life, you know, I'm prone to believe that God abandons me, which is such a lie, but I'm prone to believe that. Why? Because somewhere along the line, someone probably abandoned me, maybe. But the enemy knows he can speak that to me, and he knows that I will listen. So I've got to have something in my pack that I can come back with that's truth. So that's why, for me, memorizing Hebrews 13, 5, right? Where, Jesus, or where God says, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the simple sentence that, for me, has saved me. The Bible won't mean anything to you if you don't realize you need it. And Jesus, in Matthew 4, as he's quoting Scripture back at Satan, He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on the words of God. Fellow jacked up human being, okay? You do not live by breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You live by the Bible. And if that's the case, then this preparedness, I want this preparedness. I want something to be ready. And this is, for me, I used to carry around this little little Bible not the little weird, like, only Psalms and Proverbs Old Testament ones, but like the full Bible, right, in my back pocket. And I used to walk around with it, and one day I realized, like, if a lie hit me in the moment, and I had to go and look it up, that might be too much time. I might already be down. I might already be lost in that lie. It might be too much time for me to go to my back pocket and search for it, or for me to go to my, my phone and do a, a word search on it. I needed it in me, in me to combat those lies. Now, one of the greatest lies that the enemy speaks to us as believers is that, um, is a simple phrase. You are not good enough to do good. And that is why when Paul says that we we allow ourselves or we, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, We have been given righteousness, okay? We have been given right standing with God. Your righteousness is not your righteousness. It it comes from Jesus. And if we haven't figured this out yet, basically the thing that all of these pieces of armor are, are proclaiming or talking to is just the gospel arm yourself with the truth. Arm yourself with the fact, remember, I have given to you righteousness. So when the enemy tells you that what you've done in your past 
Danny, what you've done in your past, the mistakes you make daily, disqualify you from service. There is no discharge that is dishonorable in the kingdom of God because Jesus has washed it away. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a key word here that I want you to remember somewhere deeper than just your brain. Become the righteousness of God. You were not just given the righteousness of God. You have become the righteousness of God. The enemy wants you to see yourself as too bad to do good. If he can get you to focus on your sin, then you probably won't keep your eyes on Jesus. The truth that sets us free in the gospel is that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we now offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. So with that said, it is not self-righteousness. It is God-righteousness. One of the ways that the enemy can take us down is by having us believe that we are righteous in and of ourselves, that we have something above and beyond other people, that we're doing well. Yeah, like that. But that's one of the examples. That's one of the things that, if I were the enemy, what I would do is similar to like Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde, if you guys remember. In the beginning, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde keeps like, there, there's this like weird interaction, right, where this guy keeps coming out. This evil person keeps coming out of him. And he doesn't understand why. He doesn't get what's going on. It's like, Dr. Jekyll is supposed to be, you know, Mr. Hyde, like what's going on? Like how does this work? And then somewhere in the middle, he can't control it anymore. This bad person keeps coming out. And then one day he decides to do good. And you know where it leaves him? This didn't say it in the children's books, okay? This it pretty much just talked about the park bench in the children's book. But he's sitting down, and all of a sudden he goes, I'm pretty sweet. I'm pretty great. I'm doing a lot of good things. Look at me. And you know what he does? He switches in that moment into that evil person. And he realizes that even when he does good on his own, he feels pride. And in the end, he realizes there's no coming back from that, except in Christ. The self-righteous can repent. The enemy cannot expose you if you have already exposed yourself because you trust God. For many of us, we need to confess that we are deeply, unrighteously judgmental. I'm, I'm going to say it boldly. You are deeply, unrighteously judgmental of other people, and even yourself. You have formed thoughts and identities for other people that put them inside of a box and actually are putting you inside of a box. And you are trapped. But the beauty of Christ is that we can repent of anything. And the Lord says he brings us back. We were all bad to the core and we are all being redeemed as believers. We must regularly, lovingly observe each other's lives and seek to gently help others see their sin. And that's mandated. But if your observance of others leads to self-righteous judgment, 
then we may not be fully walking in Christ's righteousness because of grace. And thus, we are exposed to the enemy attacking us in our pride. The last piece of armor that we're going to talk about today is another readiness piece. And this is where I kind of want to focus in and come back to that Pax Romana, Pax Christi idea. Was the soldier in front of Jesus wearing shoes, or the soldier, excuse me, in front of Paul wearing shoes that looked kind of new, like this soldier had never known long marches and dusty roads, like this soldier was comfortable enough that he had his soldier outfit that he wore every day, but he didn't wear the breastplate necessarily because it's uncomfortable and heavy. He wasn't necessarily uh, putting on any belts of truth or or tying up his tunic so that he was ready for whatever came. He wanted to be as comfortable as possible. He wasn't ready. Maybe his shoes weren't ready. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul tells us that Jesus is our peace. This peace that he brings is not always comfortable. It's not a sheltered peace of empires and wealthy people, but it is the peace of knowing that no matter what happens to us, nothing can touch what really matters. Satan cannot get to our standing with Jesus. But Satan can make us think that peace has nothing to do with the gospel and more to do with a good job, more to do with good plans, good neighborhoods, and accomplishing a certain standard for ourselves. Sometimes it's, sometimes, I I think it's funny because I always talk about this like, I think about it this way, but sometimes I'm just more content in being able to go to the store and buy whatever I want And it's not as deep as like having a great job or whatever. Sometimes it's just peace is the ability to watch as much TV as I want to in my off time or whatever. That's my peace outside of Christ. I rest there. But this is not the peace of the gospel. The peace of Jesus, Pax Christi, must be shared. It must be shared. So you know, Pax Romana was something that people understood And they want, Rome didn't just conquer for greed, even though that was a part of it. Rome conquered because they thought they were better and they were bringing something better. In their Roman ideals and in their Roman thought process, they were bringing to the rest of the world what Rome had. They were benefiting them. And the peace of Rome was something that, that some thought must be shared and some thought didn't need to be. But the peace of Christ must be shared. Unlike Pax Romana, or our current era known as Pax Americana, Jesus' peace will last forever in a kingdom that will not be defeated, torn down, or ripped apart. The peace of Rome had a beginning and an end. The peace of America has a beginning and an end. But the peace of Christ has no beginning and no end. This is a kingdom that will never, ever, 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 I could continue, but it would be annoying, ever, ever, ever be gone. Humanity's opulence and self-righteousness will eventually end in some way, but Pax Christi does not. That is why this peace and ultimately the good news of the kingdom of God must be shared. Jesus brings a lasting peace and everyone seeking peace, we are participants in the only kingdom that can promise that lasting peace. This peace of God does not mean that we will ever, we will never have it hard but that through Jesus we can enter the eternal relationship with our creator again, that the separation that once marred our species has been repealed by God himself in the single most inspiring act of love ever seen. Thus we wear the shoes of readiness, always prepared to share the good news. 
and marching anywhere we are needed to compete for the souls of our neighbors and all humanity. There are two types of warriors, I believe, in the kingdom of God. There are those who can be aloof, despondent, independent, and self-centered. These warriors are exposed. Their life is defined by, is defined by their belief in the peace of their circumstances or the ability to make peace only in their circumstances. Those warriors are so caught up in that that they are actually the ones who are most exposed. The second warrior heeds warnings. He knows how dangerous this place can be. He knows how dangerous it is for someone like him in this foreign place. And he knows that at any time, he has an enemy who is willing to do whatever he can in that moment to render him useless. Uh, To finish, um, I was curious as to whether the church in Ephesus actually did stand like Paul commanded them to. And in Revelation, uh, John writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, this is Revelation 2, 1 through 7, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. See, the church of Ephesus took this knowledge and they did a great job in some areas. But they forgot in the end that it's all about Jesus. That the armor that God provides has always been and will always be focused on Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. Righteousness is Jesus. The truth, Jesus says, is him. In, John, in Ephesians 2.14, Jesus says he is our peace. Every example in the armor of God focuses on one person, Jesus. It's not just about reading your Bible. It's not just about trying to do good, and it's not just about sharing the gospel. It's about Jesus, 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 Jesus. The Roman guard in Rome has no idea Whether today or not, he will be in a battle. But he's pretty sure he won't, and he is really comfortable not focusing on anything important. He is pretty comfortable not being prepared, and he is pretty comfortable not at all wearing the the armor that Rome has given him. But that guard in Judea is prepared. He is in a foreign place with people who he doesn't know, who don't understand him. Believer, you are in a foreign place. Are you prepared, truly prepared, because you have gone to Jesus regularly? You are with Jesus. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I abide in you. So my last question, and then I'll pray and we'll sing, is it's just this. If the answer is always Jesus, in a list of important things, time-wise, heart-wise, In your life, where is Jesus? Are you in love with the Lord? Or 
Is God just a roommate with you? Father, thank you for putting up with me and for putting up with all of us. Um, we, I mean, not this surprises you, but we're really pretty messed up. Um, at the same time, Lord, you have given us something that we have no idea how to handle. Um, Father, I picture David and Saul when Saul gave David his armor and David thought, man, this is too much. <laughs> Sometimes, Lord, I feel like um, you understand the battle so much better than me that if it feels like too much, it's only because that's what we need. Lord, I pray that we would see you today and that we would walk with you in truth, in righteousness, and in your peace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.